Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us for a return visit to Dr. Doctor will be Dr. Ashley Fernandez, pediatrician, ethicist, and dynamic conversationalist. In late April, I got to hear Ashley present where he talked about seven arguments that the secular world uses to tell us why we should not be permitted to follow our conscience as we practice medicine. And, you know, with his unique wit and creativity, he demolished those arguments by showing how empty and inconsistent they are. And I thought, wow, this would be really great for our listeners. And I think he's going to give us some practical tips on how to combat those arguments while still loving the arguers. Uh, so I think you're in for a, a treat. And, and so I'd like to ask, you know, my good co-host, Chris, you know, based on your experience in, in obstetrics where uh, these, you know, moral, ethical conscience issues might come up more, uh, especially regarding a Catholic view of reality versus a non-Catholic view of reality, what do you think is so important about this topic? Yeah, I mean, you can think of it in a couple of ways, but it, as I think of it in its broadest sense, um, it's just so anti-American almost, <laughs> uh, or un-American at least, maybe anti is not the proper word, to think that someone is going to make me do something that opposes my fundamental religious beliefs. If you just pause for a minute and and take that in, that's that goes against everything we generally believe as Americans. We we hold these, you know, these truths to be self-evident, don't we? That we protect a freedom from religion, a freedom of religion, that you and I are allowed to practice and express our religion in the ways that we see fit and that we respect others' right to do that as well. That is very American. So then to go from that tenet and to say, okay, I'm a physician and I have to do things like perform abortions or prescribe abortion-causing medications or prescribe medications to nine-year-old children who are uh, in, the, in the midst of transitioning to a different gender, things that I hold to be fundamentally, categorically immoral, that I have to do those things. Um, it, it is anything but American. And I think our listeners need to, need to consider that this is kind of the ultimate and slippery slope. So it, it might be tempting, as we'll hear uh, Ashley talk about in some of the secular arguments, to say, look, this is medicine and medicine is different. Well, medicine today, accounting tomorrow, marketing the next day. Um, so it's very important for our listeners because it really does, I think, strike at the heart of what it means to be an American uh, and a free society with religious freedoms. And I think one of the things I have learned that's really important is the reason we think it's wrong to do these things is because we think it's harmful for our patients. and We really want to do what's best for our patients. Don't we? Yeah, we do. And in many cases, in my, in my case in particular, what's best for my patient is that they see someone else uh, that may do or practice or believe in a way that I don't. And I need to be comfortable telling them that because they're going to get better care and care that's more consistent with their values if that's what they want. Um, but forcing me to do something as their physician that I don't believe is the right thing to do that's a lose-lose scenario in my way of thinking. Right. I mean, I don't want to go to a doctor and he's going to do something to me or for me that he thinks is wrong. That's, that's not why I go to a professional in any profession. I go for their expertise. If I agree with it, I'll take their prescription. If I don't, I'll go somewhere else. I don't know why he, should, he or she should be forced to do what I want, even if they think I'm wrong. Yeah, isn't that interesting? As the patient, you're going to vote with your feet. Right, so if you th you're going to either take or not take that advice, which is appropriate, I like to tell patients, I give advice, you make decisions. Um, but why wouldn't that same protection, so to speak, be extended in both ways in the relationship? I don't have to do something I don't want to do as the as the physician. You don't have to do something you don't want to do as the patient. That's good for both of us. You made a great point there. 
Um, as a doctor, we give advice. The patient makes the decisions. But I still run into a lot of patients who say, just tell me what to do, doc. Does that happen to you? Uh, occasionally. I guess I guess it does. People will often say to me, thanks for the choices, but tell me what you would do in my position. That's always the zinger question from patients. Or they'll, tell, they'll say, tell me what you would have me do if I were your wife or I were your daughter, um, which is the way we should really always advise, I think. Um, I like that form of it. It's a lot better than asking, what should I do? It's like, what would you do in my situation? And at least I can give an honest answer uh, to that because I think whenever answering the, what should I do? We can, we can set ourselves up for that lose, lose situation where if something goes wrong, well, this is what you told me I should do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Exactly. Um, And we're lucky. I mean, I, I, in my practice, I'm lucky to have great relationships uh, with our patients. And I think, not to put too fine a point on it, but the reason the relationships are strong and great is because of the transparency. Uh, and yes. that they, they know my position on ethical and moral matters because I'm happy to tell them and I feel free to tell them. <laughs> um, and, and if they don't like that, I, I'm not insulted by them not liking it. I, I want them to feel comfortable telling me they don't like it. And if that gets in the way of our care, I'll help them find someone else. The government forcing me to deliver care that I don't think I should be delivering, that's never going to be good for my patient. Especially when you don't consider it care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chris, before we go on to the medical trivia question of the day, uh, we want to invite our listeners, especially those in medical professions, to attend the 2021 Annual Education Conference of the CMA, because we think that uh, they are aching to get back together in person uh, after more than enough virtual meetings. Break. Tom, this year's topic is the joy of medicine. And the conference is held at the very family-friendly Caribe Royale in sunny Orlando, Florida. And it's October 7th through the 9th. This is an amazing facility. All the rooms are suites. There's tons of activities for families of all sizes and ages and types. Our keynote speaker is going to be a former Swiss guard, and now he's dean of a business school. Mario Ensler is incredibly funny, and he has uh, deep insights to share stories about the joy of his former boss, St. John Paul II. Tom, you and I have heard uh, Mario speak before, and I would venture to say it's impossible to hear him and not be changed by him. He's just terrific. Uh, The conference is really geared towards physicians and nurses and students and other professionals who might be sensing a loss of joy uh, in their professional lives, and they're looking for a way to rekindle that. And you know what? Even if you know, these medical professionals are not experiencing a deficit of joy in their life. Getting together in person with like-minded colleagues from around the country energizes me, and I think will energize you if you decide to come. I agree. We should point out, you don't have to be a medical professional. You could just be right. interested in medicine or interested in the topics. We'd, we'd love to have you there. And interestingly, we believe at the CMA so strongly that medical professionals will enjoy the faith and the fellowship and the formation at a conference like this that for the first time, as far as I know, the Catholic Medical Association is offering this type of a money-back guarantee. That's absolutely right, Chris. For the first time, the Catholic Medical Association is offering a rebate, a refund of the registration fee, 90% of it, for an annual meeting. This is in honor of our 90th annual meeting being held October 7th to 9th in Orlando, Florida. So if somebody attends their first ever annual meeting, whether or not they're a member, and they do not think they grew in their faith, fellowship or formation, they will receive a 90% refund of the conference registration fee. Plenty of people have gotten hooked, so to speak, on the CMA by just coming to one of these conferences. I know it changed my perspective on it many years ago. So if you're thinking about attending or you'd like to know more, just go to the Catholic Medical Association's website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And before going to our break, I will pose the medical trivia question of the day. Ashley is going to talk about medical specialty societies having a so-called standard of care that all specialists in a society are supposedly bound to follow. At least that's the argument of some who don't want us to follow our consciences when we believe that certain course of action would be harmful to our patient. My question for you, about what percentage of physicians report belonging to a medical specialty society? 
not zero, it's not 100. What do you think it is? The answer will be given at the end of the show after listening to our guest, who will join us after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome to that part of the show where we bring in our guest expert. Today, it's Dr. Ashley Fernandez, double doctor, MD, PhD, Director of Competency for Professionalism and Associate Director of the Center of Bioethics at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. He's a pediatrician and all I want you to know about him is that students love him. He's an excellent teacher, so good that in 2020, he was Professor of the Year at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. He lives in Dublin, Ohio with his wife, Shruti, a family physician, he has two sons, and he is going to educate us. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, Ashley. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. So before you got on the show, Chris and I plugged the October 7th to 9th CMA Annual Conference in Orlando. You will be moderating a session that includes three firsts at an annual meeting, at least their first since I started attending about eight years ago. We're going to do a debate structure format that you are moderating uh, on a topic that is can be touchy, and the length is new. Tell our listeners about this dynamic session you're going to be moderating. Well, I'm really excited about this session, and I think all your listeners should be too. They should spread the word. This is going to be great. I was a debater in high school, and if I do say so myself, a championship debater in high school. So <laughs> I have loved this format. One of the great things about it, it's going to allow, first of all, our guests, the, the audience, to hear from four brilliant experts in Catholic moral thought and who have a differing view. So it's not dogmatic. It's going to be, we're going to talk about brain death. And as many of your audience realizes, even within Catholic teaching and bioethics, there is some debate as to the legitimacy of brain death criteria. This will allow clinicians to pair up with philosophers and to argue not in a sort of ephemeral way, but in a very concrete way in front of an audience, the audience will be able to participate in the cross-examination periods. And then the audience will also be able to vote on who they think won the debate. So I'm really excited about it. It's going to bring some civility um, and also some controversy into our um, annual meetings. We're, we're a heterogeneous group and it'll be a lot of fun. You know, as I hear you say that, I'm reminded it's the the ability to argue is something we've lost recently i think especially in the political public square that that great minds can disagree on something and it doesn't mean that they have to massacre each other it means that they can present their way of thinking and have people decide which way of thinking they agree with so i i for one am really looking forward uh, to this format as a lesson almost uh, in civil debate and discourse absolutely and if you look at the example of the saints, one of the greatest saints of the church, one of the doctors of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, that's exactly what he did when he wrote the Summa and his other philosophical writings. He would always present the opposing view so well <laughs> that by the time you read the first part of his, um, of his work, you were like, oh, I'm convinced there is no God. Gosh, that was presented so well. And then he would <laughs> seek to take apart each one of those arguments, but he presented it fairly. And I think that's what the audience is looking for. They don't want to be siloed and to think, well, the Catholic Church, if you belong to the Catholic Church, you're not even allowed to think about different positions. These will all be things um, that are within the framework of the magisterium. So we're not having a debate about things which are antithetical to Catholic mm -hmm. or Christian teaching. Yeah. But it'll, it'll showcase disagreement um, on the cutting edge of bioethics. So, well, Ashley, let's let's talk about this this idea of following or not following your conscience. And we hear that word conscience a lot uh, in the public square today. But what do people generally mean when they're talking about conscience these days? That's an excellent question. I think when you're thinking about it in the public square, that is the layperson. Let's take someone like Oprah. We <laughs> sometimes you hear her say, "This is my truth." or this is your truth. And I think when people tend to think about conscience, they tend to think about, well, I've thought about this. I've come to a conclusion that's in my head, and that is my conscience. And I think conscience is so much more than that. So how would a Catholic think about the term conscience 
fill it out for us. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. There's, you know, I give a, a whole talk on this that lasts about an hour. But what's beautiful about our church is they have summarized their entire position in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1776, which you know what that stands for, freedom, right? You have to look this up. <laughs> and and, and this, is, this is how brilliant our, our church is. In one paragraph, they tell you everything you need to know about conscience. I'm going to read this to you. It says, Deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey, its voice ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God whose voice echoes in the depths. So what's Oprah in the secular world missing in their understanding of conscience? What they're missing and what you see in that, just that brief paragraph, the thematic element that runs through there is, there is something beyond yourself that points to the truth, to the truth about anything, about any issue, about anything you're worried about, about anything you're concerned about. It is not enough to say, I've thought about this. Your thought has to always be tethered or tied to what is actually true. And what bothers me about the Oprah expression of my truth, and you have your truth and I have my truth, is that it suggests a very subjective notion. Mm. The, absence of any, the absence of any absolute objective truth. Correct. Uh, that's the, you know, that's where we've that's where we've gone so quickly, um, you know, so recently. And I, I think about reading C.S. Lewis for the first time and being sort of just taken when he describes this idea of a natural law that exists outside of you that nobody told you, but everyone knows what it is. Absolutely. Um, and then when you think of that and you think of conscience, it seems like, how could anybody argue with protecting that? That's so sacred. We should all agree that that needs to be protected. Yes. Whatever side of the political spectrum one falls on, conscience is the last thing you have. <laughs> that really allows you the proper use of your conscience that really allows you to make those moral decisions that are so critical to human life. No one, no liberal Marxist person wants their conscience taken away from them, right? I mean, if you think about even the origins of Marxism, just to take some, an example from the political left, that was Karl Marx looking at society and thinking, this is appalling what I'm seeing. And and I think about this and I think about this and this is my, this is how objective reality ought, ought to be structured. So even someone like Karl Marx, whether he articulated it or not, valued the, his conscience, valued this idea that this was an objective truth. So Ashley, you love teaching. You're good at it. What do you want your students to most fundamentally understand about conscience? Well, I think there are two really important things. The first is has three parts. Now I'm being like Thomas Aquinas, right? The first has three <laughs> parts. Um, and, and they're what I call my sort of three rules. They're very simple to understand about conscience. So when you think about conscience and the protection of conscience as a clinician, Catholic clinicians should think about these three rules. First, you should never refuse a person, right? Everyone's created equal under God. And so... We don't have a right to say you don't deserve to be my patient because of who you are, because of what you did. Second, you will sometimes be called to refuse a practice. And that's an important distinction between refusing a person, which you can never do, and refusing a practice or a procedure, which you may be called to do. And the third thing is, if, if number two happens, if you have to refuse a, a practice or a procedure, Always provide an alternative, even if the only thing that you can provide is the presence of yourself as a gift of healing. That's and it. I've heard you say this multiple times through the years. I always write it down. I think I finally have it remembered because <laughs> it is so important. You said there's a second part, and I hope it addresses this, because oftentimes when a student is put in a position where they're uncomfortable their their attention just goes back someplace deep in their basal ganglia and all they know how to say is i can't do that i'm catholic we have to be able to respond better than that yes i think so i think that by you know at the root of everyone's in, in a way it's it's heartening to when people sort of make that mistake and they say i can't do that because i'm catholic 
because you can tell they're falling back on this secure place yeah. at the core of what they believe is that, hey, I know that I can't do this because I'm Catholic, which, which in a way is a good thing. But I will say it's not a good strategy <laughs> right. because, um, because why conscientious objectors in medicine object has to do both with the moral aspect, which is in, so, in many ways independent of the religious belief. And right. it also has to do with a medical belief, right? Yes. So this is, this is not, we're not conjurers of cheap tricks um, and be, who believe in magic. This is a medical issue. A physician that is opposed to abortion is opposed to it because from a moral point of view, you cannot take the life of an innocent human person. And you can argue about um, what constitutes a person. That's a philosophical discussion. But the second thing is medically, an abortion kills the patient. That is never good for the person medically ever. And so you, you can make this, um, and then you can talk about the consequences for the woman who has an abortion and the medical aspects of that. But there's always, and this is the beauty of God's truth, is that the truth of what we learn in the church, the truth of what we learn in philosophy, the truth of what we know from science and medicine, those things naturally comport and are meant to do so. And so, um, and so saying I'm, you know, I'm opposed to this because I'm a Catholic, there are much better ways yeah. um, to talk about it and to convince people that at least you should have that ability to object to something you fundamentally disagree with. Because in some ways it's a, it's a verbal shorthand. It's just yes. quick. It's very quick to say that. And as you say, it could be charming, but you know, I think it's worth pointing out to our listeners, especially today in the public square debate where we have public figures that identify as Catholic, but that are not following Catholic teaching. Well, that just gets even more confusing. So to your point, yes. it's just not a very good way to convince someone of something. Yes. I, I, and I will say, can I say one other thing? Yeah. I, when I think about this, I think that we have to be realistic about the way the world and the culture views our church. In the mm -hmm. past, if you had said, I'm a Catholic, maybe 50 years ago, I don't know because I wouldn't have been born, just so you're really know. Um, but maybe maybe that a long, long time ago, like 50 or 75 years ago. Um, you know, I it, it, when you said, I can't do this because I'm a Catholic, that notion would have been respected. If you said, I can't do this because I'm a Muslim today, for example, or if I can't do this because I'm a Buddhist, I think that would be more respected. And I think people might take that a little bit more seriously. But now especially within academia, especially within medicine and the scientific community. If, if trainees, residents, physicians say that, I think it's going, it could potentially bring more animus um, than less. Hmm. Well, before we get into the seven key arguments against conscience, I have one big picture type question and I wrote it down so that this thought wouldn't die of loneliness. <laughs> and, and the question is this, it seems that those people who are against following conscience are really not against following conscience in general. They just want us to follow their consciences. And if that's the way it is, how is this not just bullying? I, I think it is a, it is a kind of bullying. And what the, the root cause of that approach, which is, hey, you can't follow your conscience. You have to follow my conscience or you have to follow the conscience of the patient, right? Who, who's demanding something that's a, a type of care, what they call care, that might be inappropriate. The, the root cause of that is that if you do not believe in this transcendence of conscience, that is there's something outside yourself that orients us sort of like the North Star to what is true, um, then what becomes true is only what you believe. And if that is the case, that is to say there's nothing transcendent, there is no God, there is no purpose to our existence, then choice becomes the sort of the new replacement, right? For the transcendent, it becomes the person's choice. Now, if you tell them, well, I can't um, abide by your choice, then you are degrading their dignity by definition. That, that's a very disturbing and dangerous trend. Um, and I think the, 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 you know, that's the fundamental root. So then what happens? It becomes Nietzschean will to power. Whoever has the power in the moment can force you to do anything really even against your will. And that I think is the motivation behind some of the anti-conscientious objection um, 
academics and physicians is we're just going to force you to do this. And this has gone beyond reason. Means that it, it is bullying to Tom's point. It is. Yes, it absolutely. Is. But we've seen it. We've talked with other guests on other episodes, this sort of um, evolution, if you will, recently of the concept of personal autonomy has, has become the transcendent truth. I mean, this idea yeah. that yes. an individual's autonomy trumps everything. Yes. And that's, that's a new way of thinking. Um, yeah. And, and you know, what's, I, 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 something inspired me. I was listening to a, to a guest on a, on a news network talk about this. And I was thinking, you know, even as far as maybe five or, or 10 years ago, we talked about autonomy being this dominant principle or precept. And when you say the word principle, you're always thinking, okay, well, this has to do with reason, right? So we can yes. argue about yes. beneficence versus autonomy versus, you know, and people are reasoning it out. What, what this guest on, on a television network used this phrase, which I absolutely love. He said, we've gone beyond um, identity politics to what he called identity epistemology. Oh my now, gosh. Now, now yes. bear with me for a second. What he's basically saying is that your preferences about what you want have to do with the knowledge. It has to do with knowledge that only you have access to. Mm -hmm. Okay. No one else can therefore correct you. No one else can say you're wrong about your perceptions. It's not identity politics. It's identity epistemology. So we've evolved from this place where we might be able to argue about what's autonomous, you know, what are limits to autonomy in a rational fashion to saying, well, now you can't even argue with me about my choices because you don't have access to them. Only I have access or knowledge. That's the epistemology part. Only I have access to my own knowledge. You can have no shared experience with me. You cannot tell me that I can't have this procedure done or that I won't be able to do this because you don't have access to it. And that is an even da more dangerous place, right? Because then that dogma becomes purely a subjective phenomenon. And that is a great place to take a break halfway through this wonderful interview before we come back and we take a look one at a time at Seven Arguments Against Conscience with Dr. Ashley Fernandez here on Dr. Doctor. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And we're going to move right into these seven arguments against me being allowed to follow my conscience. And I think the first one is, is one of the better ones. It's the concept of it's the law. You have to because it's the law. Ashley, help us understand this argument. Well, I think it's easy to understand when you realize the argument is false. So just so, <laughs> just so your viewer, people will just fiat this argument in and they'll just tell medical students and residents at different institutions, well, you have to do it. And even if you don't do it, you have to refer. There's no evidence given. There's no data given. And for your viewers, I mean, sorry, listeners, they should look at conscienceproject.com, I think it is, or conscienceproject.org. That's a website that gives, there's a, there's a lot of them out there, but that will give a state-by-state -state list of the actual wording of the statutes in different states. It's also protected, some would argue, under the First Amendment, which protects freedom of religion and freedom of expression. And then there are various laws that have not been um, removed from the books yet, both federal and state, that will protect the right of people, not just to not do a procedure like abortion or assisted suicide, um, but also to not refer. Medical students and trainees are specifically protected under federal law. And I'll also point out that under the assisted suicide laws in every state in which it's legal in the United States, you still do not have to refer. So the default position is actually one of protection of conscience. People just like to, let me just be blunt, lie about it um, so that medical students get scared into believing that this is the norm. So the correct response is, what law? Prove it. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. So if you move on uh, second, we're told that we're by by refusing to do something that we're placing some unfair burden on the patient if we follow our conscience. Help us understand what's going on here. Yeah, there the argument the people are making is that you, as a doctor, as a nurse practitioner, as a PA, you're the one, you're the gatekeeper, and essentially, if you don't provide a person either with an abortion or a referral for an abortion, that doesn't allow the patient to get the quote care that they need. And I think it's important here to remember the counter argument is, first, you don't have to agree on what care, quote unquote, is, right? So the conscientious objector to physician-assisted suicide, to abortion, to various forms of sterilization, they don't believe that that's care. And so 
the burden, um, the, the so, so-called unfair burden has to be balanced with beneficence, which is um, the physician acting for the good of that patient, good properly understood. Number three, Ashley, they say that if we're allowed to follow our conscience, it would be, quote, an affront to the autonomy of the patient. You know, you've already brought us back up to speed on autonomy, but are we allowed to claim an affront on our autonomy as physicians? How does this autonomy thing work here? Yeah, absolutely. I think the presumption here in this argument is that somehow the patient's autonomy matters more than the physicians. Mm-hmm. And an alternative way that they might frame this is you became a physician and as a physician, you you agreed to these rules and that involves you putting the welfare of the patient before your own. I'll say two things about that. One, the well, quote unquote, welfare of the patient is debatable, right? Because none of us think that certain things like assisted suicide is ever for the welfare of the patient. And I would say the other thing is for, for listeners to remember that every person's autonomy, every person's freedom comes from the fact that they were created like God to have freedom within. It has to do with the, the concept of being a person, not the concept of what you do. The doctor and the patient exist together in a trusting relationship, but each one comes in with the same God-given freedom that they had before or after they put on their white coat. So autonomy isn't something that's taken away when you put on the white coat, and it's not something so you get extra autonomy somehow when you're (laughs) a vulnerable patient. Well, number four, I've been a victim of this one myself. We're told that because we're in a medical organization of some name or another, that they have standards um, and that I have to follow these standards because I'm the same specialty. What are the holes in this argument? Well, this is an argument that was most recently put forward in the New England Journal of Medicine by Emanuel and Stahl. I think that that was in 2017. And this is a really popular argument these days where physicians are all licensed by medical boards and they are all board certified, and the American Academy of Pediatrics has a position paper on conscience, that becomes the, quote, standard of care. I think the way you have to argue about this is standards of care, first of all, have to do with really clinical medicine, not moral medicine, not ethics. Um, and so when, when organizations put out um, papers that have to do with ethics, every physician is entitled to that ability to critique that to disagree with that, and that does not become the standard of care. I will say, secondly, the, the, the word care, again, we have to be able to dispute that. They call it standard of care. We would dispute the fact that abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, any of that is care. Um, and so I would say that's the second argument. I think the last thing is when all of us became physicians or all of us became licensed by medical boards, we did not thereby agree to every single thing in every subdiscipline and discipline of medicine. And to suggest otherwise is absolutely absurd. Because we're not brought to task if we disagree with a certain medical treatment, because in my experience, you know, this doesn't help the patient as much as I think this will. So no, I'm not going to prescribe methotrexate for this or yes. Humira or whatever other drug. We're never taking a task for that. It's only the moral issues. Yeah. I mean, think about that. That's a great point, Tom. Never do they demand like absolute uniformity on any clinical standard, no matter how strong yeah. that clinical standard is. They always say, hey, look at the patient in front of you, use use your best judgment and determine whether or not. And, and, and mind you, the things that, that Catholic physicians are asking to not participate in, are th- we're not doing anything to the patient. Right. We're refraining from an action. So all we're mm-hmm. saying is, hey, we don't want to take part in this the patient is the same before as they are after the encounter. And in fact, if we do our jobs right, the patient will be better off after the encounter because you know, they will see that they have a doctor who loves them and who actually cares about their good, even if they didn't get the thing that they wanted. At the risk of sounding naive, it's interesting. I'd like to ask someone on the other side of this issue, what do you gain by forcing me to do something I don't want to do? Ooh, why are you, why, what's motivating you? Why right. wouldn't you just say, well, he's a wacky Catholic doc, marginalize him, go over yeah. there. The market will marginalize you. I think the answer is because the market doesn't marginalize us. Yes. But I don't know the answer. I'd love to know. Well, I think one of the, one of the things that I think um, they really should be saying if they had an open heart and an open mind is, you know what? He's a wacky or she's a wacky Catholic doctor. And there are wacky patients out there too. 
<laughs> so so why don't we let the two of them hook up and you know the wacky the wacky people can take care of the wacky patients and this will help the diversity of medicine right i mean i think that's um i i don't think i think that's a great argument you don't really lose anything by allowing catholic physicians to practice according to their morals and the only way and i like the way you put it um chris because if you say what do you gain by forcing me it makes your opponent look at you as a person personally mm-hmm. they ca- they can't really say oh well i believe in abortion rights and so um you know abortion rights is an abstract thing right but if they're looking at you you're asking them what does it gain by you forcing me as dr stroud to do something i don't believe in it puts them into a really tight position so i kind of like the way you frame that i'll have to use that well done gentlemen number five okay this gives me a fascinating image it says that if we are allowed to follow our consciences as physicians that we will inevitably find ourselves on a slippery slope now the slippery slope is in aspen or vale that could be a really good thing if you have a pair of skis on so what is it that is innately wrong with a slippery slope. What does this argument even mean, Ashley? So what, what opponents of conscience are saying is if you allow a person to say, I refuse to provide contraceptives to this teen, um, then what, what stops you? If conscience is strong in that arena, what stops people from saying, you know what? This teen is gay, so I'm not going to treat him or her. Or this teen is black. So, I'm, I mean, believe it or not, you actually see our people making these arguments. Mm. So, so let me just start by saying, I, at least Anna, I know no one, no true authentic Catholic that would ever do that. So right. I think this is a red herring or straw man argument, whatever you want to call it. It's a fake argument. They're creating people who don't exist, the straw man argument, right? They're creating a situation that doesn't exist in order to justify it. Now, they might find some crazy whacked out doctor who did this, but that doesn't represent the majority of the conscientious objectors. Second, I think we have this, if we look back to my three rules, that first right. rule, never refuse, refuse a, person. a person. And that's totally commensurate with Catholic teaching. Mm. And I think, you know, the third thing is, if you look at rule number three, which is always provide your presence, that you will take care of that patient for all of their other needs. Right. I mean, you, you that, and I think that's the beauty of, of the Catholic doctor is that, we're not saying, okay, well, because you went out and you got an abortion, you didn't listen to me. I'm not going to take care of you anymore. We're doing the opposite. I want you right. guys to think about this counter example. There are a lot of people that get angry when, when a lot of doctors get angry when people don't get vaccines. Okay. And then they refuse to see them. Now, why is that acceptable in the medical culture? You didn't do what I told you. I refuse to see you anymore. But the Catholic physician would say, you know what? You didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to give you what I want. It doesn't matter. You still come back to me. So, so there's a real acceptance there, or there should be an acceptance of every other aspect of care. Great analogy. Now, number six out of seven, the penultimate argument. And that is, if we're allowed to follow our consciences, we are hurting diversity. Really? Seriously. And you're talking to a guy whose name is Ashley Fernandez. Um, (laughs) I mean, this, this, this is one of the more disturbing um, sort of fake arguments here is what you're actually doing um, is when you exclude, and there are lots of people making this argument in the bioethics literature, people who do not want to provide abortion, assisted suicide, euthanasia, transgender hormones, um, should not be doctors. They should resign. They should not even go into medicine. Medical school should exclude them. That is what hurts diversity. What is very, very worrisome about that is that the doctors who care most about personal and moral integrity are the ones they want to exclude from the profession of medicine. And to just give you a historical example, some historians think that when the when the the biggest outbreak of bubonic plague happened in Europe in the 1300s, that the Catholic priests that went out and did their job and were on the front lines, they were struck down first, right? right. They, were, they were wiped out by the plague because they went out and they actually took care of people. And what was left afterwards were, the, were a lot of corrupt priests, right? And that yeah. led to a lot of corruption in the church, which ultimately led to the Reformation. I only make that analogy because if you exclude the very people who care about moral integrity from the profession, you actually end up hurting diversity and hurting the profession as a whole. 
Well, you know, it's interesting, if not ironic, if the shoe were on the other foot, proverbially, we would be arguing to protect the conscience of those who want to perform abortions, who want to do these things. We would never exclude them um, because we don't want to be excluded. Um, But the shoe's not on the other foot. I mean, it's it's okay. As long as you agree with me, it's okay. If you disagree with me, you're hurting diversity and I'm going to exclude you. (laughs) Right. It's a laughable argument, really. And the final argument is that if we disagree with doing some procedure, prescribing some medicine, then as a last resort, we are required to refer that patient to a doctor who will. Yeah, I'll just say, number one, as we talked about before, you're never required to refer ever in any situation. The law backs you up on that. Good common sense backs you up on that. Moral philosophy backs you up on that. It's essentially saying, look, I... I'm protesting this action because of its moral character, because of its moral value. But if you're forced to refer someone, you're essentially aiding and abetting in the very thing right. that you refuse to perform. Where I hear this is when object, like people that are against conscience objection, when they're kind of backed up against a wall, right? So you've, present, you've presented them with these arguments and they're not, well, okay, that may be true. It's okay if you don't do it, but you have to refer. It's kind of a desperate argument. And, but it's a tempting argument. And this is what I want to tell, especially if there are med students, residents, nurses, trainees, even young physicians, think about this really carefully. It's so tempting to be able to say, okay, the pressure's off. Now I don't have to do the thing and I'll just quietly refer. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you are still participating in that moral act. And that is a really, really serious breach of your conscience. And eventually it's going to get you. It's going to get to you. And in some ways, it's it's almost more insidious um, than an outright participation. Yes. Quiet it evil is. is no less evil. <laughs> yes, and and what it does is what it does is it will you know the, the 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 proponents of abortion, the proponents of euthanasia and assisted suicide, they will pat you on the head and they will say, "Nice, nice, good Catholic." Now now you're tamed, right? Now you're not wild and crazy. They've tamed you. They've put a leash on you. They've said, "Well, we don't need him," right? We don't need him or her to actually do the abortion because they're going to send it. They're going to send that young girl or that woman to Dr. Smith. So really realize it's a form of control, this idea to say you must refer. The most dangerous thing to the opponents of Catholic thought on this is a physician who will not be tamed and who is bound by nothing more than the truth that they cannot, will not tolerate. You know, Ashley, Tom and I have had medical students on previous episodes, and Tom entered some at, uh, interviewed some at March for Life, as it comes to mind, where they said they had decided not to go into pediatrics because out of a fear that they would be forced by state licensing boards to provide gender-changing medications. And I think when we first heard those arguments, it sounded a bit far-fetched. That's been a couple of years ago. Today, in 2021, it sounds less far-fetched. You know, we can see state licensing boards, specialty societies, boards maybe requiring these things. What would you say to healthcare professionals existing and future that are afraid about government and institutional overreach um, into these kinds of patient-physician decisions? Yeah, I think I would um, strongly urge everyone to stay in the fight, okay, to quietly or not so quietly continue to practice medicine according to your moral conscience. I think one of the most important, and I think, um, Chris, you're absolutely right. This, we wouldn't even be having these conversations five years ago, mm-hmm. but things have rapidly evolved so quickly. Um, and, and, and I think one of the things, it, it gets to a point that, I make in, in, that I've made before, which is that there really isn't a neutral space to stand between good and evil. Mm-hmm. You really can't think that that if you just stand there in the middle, somehow people will leave you alone because they won't. We have gone from a society in which people had, there was a pluralistic side in which people could argue and debate civilly to a society where now you were kind of forced to tolerate things you didn't like. And now you're forced to celebrate things that go against your conscience. And if you don't celebrate those things or actively participate in them, then that means you're somehow disrespecting the dignity of another person. And so one of the things that I like to emphasize in these talks about conscience is, please remember that the right to conscientious objection is only a starting point. Mm 
And I guess I would say this put another way, it is a means to an end, not the end in itself. Why? Because in order to be able to shine the light of truth and show what is real and true and care for our patients, we have to have the space to do that. That's what conscientious objection rights do. They allow us to practice medicine, not for ourselves and not for our livelihood, although that is important, but also for patient care. We, we want our patients not to suffer. We want them to heal. And we can only do that if we're allowed to do that. So it's more of an evangelical, like I think of conscientious objection, not as a retreat, but more as digging in as the place from which we move forward. And we can only do that if we have that right and that right is preserved. Ashley, in our last 60 seconds, you have a great way of stating what the other side's argument would look like if we were making it ourselves. I think you'll bring the whole point of the show home by letting our listeners know that. Yeah, let me give you a little context. A professor named Julian Silviesco from, from Oxford said, quote, if people are not prepared to offer legally permitted, efficient, and beneficial care to a patient because it conflicts with their values, they should not be doctors. And I've reframed this our way to say this. If people, and you can quote me, if people are not prepared to offer life-affirming, healing, and dignity-embracing care to a patient because it conflicts with their poverty-stricken, materialist ideology, maybe they should not be doctors. <laughs> That's where we have to move to change what the default position is. Yeah, well said. Ashley, that is beautiful. You can get more of Ashley Fernandez at the uh, Orlando annual meeting of the Catholic Medical Association, October 7th to 9th. Uh, but gosh, Ashley, thanks for being with us again. We're going to have to have you back again here on Dr. Doctor. Anytime. Love to see you guys. And thanks to your audience for listening. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and experienced listeners know it's time for the answer to this episode's medical trivial question. Now, Ashley talked about this medical society's having standards of care that specialists in the society have to follow. Uh, at least that's the argument, one of the seven arguments uh, for some who oppose conscientious objection by medical providers. So this trivia question, Tom, about what percentage of physicians are reporting belonging to specialty societies? And while it sounded like every physician does, no, no physician has to. And most recent data says that four out of five, about 80% of physicians actually choose to belong to a specialty society. We don't have to, to keep our medical licenses. So although I do belong to the American Academy of Dermatology and the American College of Most Surgery, I am not required to, but I find it beneficial for the care of my patients. Yeah, what do you think, Chris? It's a great point. And people often confuse licensure of physicians with members in these societies. So uh, I'll, in the interest of transparency, I am no longer a member of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG. So after my name doesn't appear those magic letters, Fellow of the American College, or F-A-C-O-G, which is perfectly fine. They're probably happy not to have me anymore. Um, <laughs> but I still have to be licensed by my state. And those two things have nothing to do with each other. Um, I think we'll see that number of four out of five go down over time. At least I sort of hope we do. And Chris, what's your top three takeaways from this great interview with Ashley? I think we could just hit rewind and play the whole episode again. Um, it's, I don't know if we've ever had Ashley on and not, not been stricken with just how wonderful he is. But if I have to pick uh, three things, I really love that principle that we should all remind ourselves of. Never refuse a person. We can, we can refuse a practice. We can refuse to do a procedure, but we can't refuse a person uh, as good providers. And we've got to provide an alternative. And sometimes that alternative may just be, I like the way he said it, the gift of ourselves uh, and our presence uh, in the healing process. But we don't refuse people. We refuse uh, things. And second. Ah, that idea. I love the way he said this. Um, that the right to conscientious objection, that's not our victory point. That's not our end point. That's really just the beginning. Uh, we can't settle just to be allowed to conscientiously object. Uh, and we don't, we don't want to settle for that. That's not the ends. That's just a means. 
And finally, number yeah. three. Yeah, and I know you like this one too. It should be a bumper sticker. There, <laughs> there is no neutral space between good and evil. If ever there was a time to get in the game and get off the sidelines, I think that time is now. Evil is evil. Good is good. There is objective truth. There is objective evil. Uh, and we as providers, we as Catholics, as Christian believers, we've got to stop fooling ourselves and thinking there is that neutral space and get off the sideline and commit. And I think this will be a good episode for especially students and young practitioners to listen to frequently because there's so much practical information they can use in their regular practice. You know, I like the other thing that Ashley said. For those students that are worried about it when we ask yes. them about that, you know, I think we could argue those are the very learners that we need to go into those specialties. Don't shy away from them. Uh, don't don't let the, the insanity of the day keep you from a specialty you feel called uh, to work in. An excellent point. And on that one, we'll thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or the radio. The good news, indeed, we hope you agree. And be sure to rate and review the show. It'll help other listeners find us. You can find this and all of our episodes at our website, drdoctor.org. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.